Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, on behalf of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, the Lieberthal Rogel Center for Chinese Studies at the University of Michigan, and the Michigan China Innovation Center. My name is Mark Dallas. I'm a professor of political science at Union College in New York, and I'm currently a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. Um, my research focuses on China supply chains and emerging technologies, which is what our conversation today is all about. Now with us today, we have uh, Peter Cleveland, the Vice President of Global Government Affairs at Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, also known as TSMC and Brittany Masalosalo, the Senior Director for Commercial Diplomacy and Multilateral Affairs at 3M. So we're here to discuss issues of supply chain, the national security as they pertain to US-China relations, things that have been in the news quite a bit. Um, I'd just like to spend a couple minutes just to give a little bit of background and to sort of set the scenes, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to questions for you guys and sort of have a, a conversation. Um, so just for general general information, um, you know, supply chains generally have been seen through the lens of economic efficiency and firm competitiveness. Um, some of the positives of this are, you know, firm specialization, country specialization, and then trade. So gains of trade. But as everyone knows, there's been negative uh, issues with regards to job loss or sort of especially manufacturing uh, in the United States. And also from China's perspective, often, often being trapped in low value added segments of supply chains. But then, of course, uh, with the Trump administration, there was a sea change uh, in a way in which supply chains started to become weaponized and uh, political weapons and, and issues of national security as well from the U.S. side. Uh, this was, you know, often U.S. security concerns about China's uh, technological competitiveness, as well as the deep linkages and integration between China and the United States. Um, and of course, this weaponization became through to full fruition, you know, in the example of Huawei. Um, but there's dozens and dozens of Chinese firms that have sort of become entangled in, in U.S. Uh, export controls and investment reviews. Um, and from China's perspective, you know, they have a long history of trying to aim for technological self-sufficiency. Um, but Trump's, the Trump administration's actions sort of made this very tangible to them uh, in impacting a lot of their national champions. Um, and so it greatly stimulated China to respond. So both sides have this issues of insecurity. Um, and there seems to be a development of this pattern of action and reaction, uh, which you know, sort of mutually confirms each other's um, worst fears. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened, uh, that which deepened these insecurities for, for everyone. Uh, and, you know, there are more general insecurities, not just now security oriented, but just with regards to supplies of critical products and supply chains. And this impacted lots of industries, um, you know, in the minds of most people, probably healthcare is probably the most important one, um, healthcare products, but it's impacted all industries, really. Um, and so overall, people and policymakers, you know, they are now much more aware of the fragilities of supply chains. Um, you know, small or, or a set of issues could impact sort of auto production in the United States, for instance, uh, which was also in the news, a whole set of global uh, uh, impacts could, could impact, a, you know, domestic industry like that. So the converse, my point is the conversation has shifted from sort of a more efficiency oriented conversation, development oriented conversation of supply chains to new concepts of resiliency, decoupling, reshoring, self-reliance and other sort of national security issues. 
So I'd like to start with these sort of national security issues. Um, you know, a key challenge today, I think, in emerging technologies in particular is sort of the dual use of it, uh, of technologies. What I mean by that is there's sort of civilian applications and military applications for the same technologies. Um, and in the past, you know, military technologies were often clearly definable in a way, like nuclear having civilian and military applications or aerospace having more clearly civilian and military applications. And I'm wondering, you know, today it's seen, and so therefore you could sort of more easily monitor and control them and separate out nice, more clearly, let's say, national security issues without massive economic disturbances. Today, it seems like a lot of the emerging technologies, there's a more blurred sense here where, you know, AI or autonomous vehicles or robotics, um, nano quantum computing, there's, um, you know, it's not easily differentiated, the military and civilian sides of things. And, you know, both China and the US are highly competitive in a lot of these industries, and there's a lot of cooperation among them as well, and including investment flows and whatnot. So I'm curious, just for each of you, uh, I just want to ask sort of your general thoughts and opinions on this topic that the line between civilian and military is, is blurred in these new emerging industries, and to what extent is this driving security fears in the US and China? But then, you know, if you could also comment on your particular industry, let's say, um, since a lot of this can be very industry specific, as we know, um, and maybe in so doing, maybe you could briefly introduce your company a little bit. I'm sure everyone has heard of TSMC and 3M, uh, but just they may not know the true scope of, of your two companies. So um, maybe you could start with Peter, if you want to uh, lead us off. Sure. Sure, thank you, Mark, and thank you to the National Committee. It's such an important organization uh, in terms of the constructive and affirmative work it does bilaterally with China in the, in the United States. It's a great honor to be here and to speak on these issues. Thank you, Jan. Thanks to Steve Orleans and all the terrific people there. Um, as Mark noted, I, I work at a company called TSMC, and we focus on building chips, those digital engines uh, that are so important uh, inside of laptops, desktops, phones, but then data centers and servers and elsewhere. And so what Mark's talking about in terms of a competition with China and then some of these things like AI and high, high performance compute applications, um, none of that works without the hardware, without the chip. It's the most important product in the world, technology product in the world. And as a starting point, what you're seeing is the administration uh, and the White House recognize that. Joe Biden himself has talked about this very publicly about restoring fabrication capability here in the United States, particularly on the leading edge. That's at five, four, and three, two nanometer. The smallest chips, that have the highest performance and uh, resiliency and speed and thermal energy efficiency. That's critical. And they get that. And the president understands it. And then his treasury, his uh, commerce secretary, Raimondo, is relentless. She thinks about this and talks about this and tweets about this every day. So it's important to um, really restore your ability to manufacture here across the board not just the leading edge, but on US shores. And that's what their policies are starting to do. There's the CHIPS Act, which they've been pushing. Their 100-day supply review, which they have completed, which was very thoughtful about some of these details. 
and then funding new fabrication here in Phoenix, in Austin and elsewhere is prudent and will help make the US supply chain when it comes to chips, much, much stronger. There's a, there's a lot of work to do, but in principle, they've got the policy right and they're building momentum in the right direction. Um, this is complex, it's difficult. Chips are very hard to understand. And you don't want to think about trying to achieve total self-sufficiency. Uh, the global supply chain for chips has uh, been durable for many decades. We have 3,000 suppliers at TSMC all around the world. 3M is one of our suppliers. They are a fantastic, critical company. But you can incrementally shift the supply chain. I think Mark was using the terms near Nearshoring, friendshoring, onshoring, I'm losing, I lose track of all the terms, but um, it's interesting, it's important, but don't think that you can completely uh, uproot a supply chain uh, abroad and then just plant it here. Uh, that, that is not what the administration is trying to do. And so, um, so far so good. A, a, a good start with the Biden folks, but I'd be interested to hear from, um, from Brittany as well. Yeah, please, Brittany, do you have a- Yeah, yeah, um, thanks for that, Peter. And I'll begin by echoing your comments. Thank you, Mark. And um, to the National Committee, it is absolutely my pleasure and my honor um, to be here with you today because there's critical work to be done. And I'm glad that we're having these conversations to maybe kickstart some of that critical work. Um, 3M, we're an advanced material science company. We have 90,000 plus employees all around the world with operations in nearly every single country. Um, our plant manufacturing facilities uh, are in every single geographic region. So our supply chains are very, very complex, um, not to mention the 56,000 different products that 3M manufactures. Um, we are in almost every single industry. And so we can speak to uh, every single regulatory issue hurdle or geopolitical constraint that's out there. With US-China relations kind of being number one, it's a very complex relationship and any multinational corporation that's working on both sides of the Pacific understands it. Uh, I'll begin by talking a little bit about the national security concerns that you were discussing, Mark. You know, the semiconductors really put us at the crux of this because when it comes to dual-use technologies, it really does epitomize. And I think um, Peter spoke to that brilliantly. It's in everything from cell phones to cars to ventilators to some of our most sophisticated defense materials and defense applications. So it really does epitomize that. And I think both the US and China um, governments have a keen awareness of how important and critical this technology is and how this hardware is. So they're beginning to react and respond to that. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing right now. Um, as Peter mentioned, 3M is a supplier in the semiconductor supply chain. So we're both upstream and downstream. So we see the impacts of this government awareness, this heightened awareness uh, very keenly and very astutely. And we're navigating this with our um, partners like TSMC and others as best as we can. But it's becoming increasingly difficult. You know, there's a lot of volatility around it. And I don't think the right conversations are always being had. 
Um, one point that I would like to raise in reference to national security and appropriate government response in that is that what we have seen over the last two years is that the national security definition kind of waves, it goes up and down. And we see certain items, products, and technologies fall in and out of scope. So 3M is the world's largest manufacturer of N95. At the peak of the COVID-19 outbreak, N95s became a matter of national security because as governments all around the world were trying to as quickly as possible develop a response and equip their citizens with all the tools that they needed to fight this invisible enemy, all of a sudden N95s became one of the most sought after and needed weapons in that fight. And so governments around the world began clawing and grabbing to get as many of them on their hands, including the United States and China. Um, so this was an area where 3M all of a sudden found one of our marquee products becoming a matter of national security. And I use that as an anecdote because it's important to understand how items can kind of go in and out of scope, depending on the circumstance, depending on geopolitical relationships, tensions, and just kind of what's happening in the world. That's great. Well, thank you. I mean, for both of you, you know, that gives a great sense in which it's such an evolving dynamic uh, uh, topic in terms of both the supply chains, you know, world events, changing things and, and altering sort of the landscape for, for companies and for policymakers and others. Um, I'm curious to push a little more, um, you know, a couple things is one, uh, are, do you feel that sort of policymakers um, have overreacted in certain instances, let's say, in terms of, you know, stressing national security preemptively or too much, let's say, vis-a-vis um, -vis other, other interests, let's say. I mean, there's a lot, just so the audience knows, there's a lot of different tools out there, policy tools by which, um, especially the U.S. government uses, um, you know, export controls, investment reviews, they can put companies on entity lists. And China seems to actually be building some of this uh, in, you know, recently uh, as well. So I'm, I'm just curious if, if um, there's a sense in which um, you, know, you feel like there can be overreaction uh, um, out of the gate. And also the, the flip side or the optimistic side of that is, could US and China sort of have its cake and eat it too? Um, you know, can we resolve, do you feel like we can resolve these security issues while also maintaining, you know, integration with them and sort of what, what can be done? Because that's not really the, where the conversation is very much today. It's much more about separation, but the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the ultimate goal really should be, you know, let's both be safe, you know, feel, feel secured in terms of our national security interests and continue to, to integrate um, and, and cooperate and whatnot. So there's sort of like negative and a positive uh, part to that. Um, Brittany, do you, do you have any thoughts on either one? You can choose either one or you can do them both. <laughs> yeah, sure. Happy to jump in there. So I do have a national security background. I served on uh, President uh, Joe Biden at the time. He was Vice President Joe Biden's foreign policy office. So I understand that national security concerns are um, largely, they are uh, very realistic. And a lot of times there are legitimate concerns to have. And so governments around the globe, whether it's the U.S. or China or otherwise, you know, it's, it's actually appropriate governance and due diligence that they respond when there is a national security concern. 
I say that with the caveat that right now we are going through a little bit of a transition here in the United States where the national security bucket is being enlarged. And we saw this under the previous administration where economic security became an aspect of national security. That's kind of where we saw the weaponization of tariffs and, and other items to try to help ensure that economic security was being addressed. So we're drifting out of the traditional national security budgets, I mean, not budgets, but national security sphere, for lack of a better term. Um, and it's starting to be looked at more holistically. Um, Secretary Blinken gave a speech just a couple of days ago at the University of Maryland, where he spoke to how a US and American worker focus was going to become a critical element of national security and foreign policy. So I say that to kind of set the stage that as we're seeing national security drifting and expanding, that really has to be the compass that we use to see if governments are overreaching or overreacting. Now, what's happening, though, is that governments like the United States government, Chinese government, and otherwise, they are um, kind of having a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. They're not always consulting the practitioners or um, the people who, are, who these regulatory changes are going to be imposed upon, i.e. industry, when it comes to trying to regulate supply chains. So there, there's not always a full understanding of the entire scope of what some of these regulations may have. Um, I think the example of Huawei or you know, TikTok or some of the other ones that we have seen really do exemplify that. Well, we've even had a couple of cases where the government has had to impose some sort of regulations and then walk them back a little bit um, or kind of retract a little bit uh, on those because after the fact, they understand that the third, fourth order degree impacts of this are going to be a lot larger than maybe intended. I think it's really about finding that balance, finding the balance to where we are actually addressing legitimate national security concerns, making sure that the appropriate protections are in place, um, with also making sure that we keep marketplaces open that we allow multinational corporations to thrive and grow and have that economic benefit on both sides. Um, it's important to find that balance and you're not gonna find that balance unless you're engaging all of the stakeholders here. So some of the stakeholders range all the way from the employees to the um, companies, to the corporations that are involved in this, to the governments, of course, both governments. But kind of the last point that I would emphasize here that we're not seeing enough of is cooperation. We have to see cooperation. We can't have um, a lot of this being handled unilaterally. There has to be multilateral and bilateral cooperation in order for this to be successful. Right, that's, that's super. Peter, do you have um, more to add to that? I'm sure you agreed with a lot of it. I think the way Brittany put that is very artful. Finding that balance, it's very hard to do. I mean, I will dovetail right into what uh, she said. We trusted the judgment uh, TSMC of the Trump administration as they tightened export controls, and we certainly trust the judgment of the Biden administration. We uh, don't have full transparency and knowledge for the basis of their decision to ensure and sustain U.S. national security. We trust them that they're making the right decisions. It, uh, they are focused on the PLA and restricting high-tech uh, exports to them through the military end-user rule, through entity listings, through the new ICTS rule, through the SDN rule. And we will abide by the letter and the spirit of those US regulations. You're like on a balance beam. It's so hard to do for us. It's like Simone Biles. She's so amazing. You got to stay on the balance beam 
we're just a company that makes chips. And so we listen to them and try to stay on a balance beam and follow their orders um, um, so that what we produce, which is the finest chips in the world in terms of speed, performance, dynamism, functionality, performance, transistor density, don't find their way into the hands of the wrong folks in um, China. It is not easy for us to do to comply. We're not a comp we don't have a massive compliance skill set. Uh, and then what we, we do want to ship to the Chinese people and uh, uh, provide good technology to them. And so what she, Brittany was talking about, finding the, the balance, I don't think the White House is always feels like that they have 100% confidence. And so that's why more communication and transparency and working closely together with the regulatory officials at DOD, Commerce, and the White House will be beneficial. I'll also um, add there that what's critical to that balance is that there has to be an appreciation for the opportunities in the Chinese market. So like you said, we want to be able to supply the Chinese people with products, whether it's chips or, or N95s or you know, other technologies, but any company that's not looking at the Chinese market as an opportunity is not looking in the right areas because you know, the, the economic growth, the opportunities there are massive. And I think that both governments are interested in having that market develop even more. That's great. And, and you know, another thing that I think people can think about is that you know, a lot of this evolves over time and people's thinking and the technologies themselves evolve over time. You know, if you look way back in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you know, we were developing ideas of what is nuclear, how do we differentiate military and other usages. And so my hope, at least, is that you know, we kind of work through it. So I, I agree with Peter that you know, no one knows in a way right now these emerging technologies, how they might be used in the future or how to sort of regulate them more carefully. But my hope is that through dialogue, like you guys said, and cooperation, uh, we'll learn basically and we'll we'll refine the policy tools and everything so that there isn't this sort of overreach. So maybe it's you know growing pains in these new new technologies type of thing. Um, okay, great. So I wanted to just, if you don't mind, just dig a little bit into the weeds uh, a little bit of of supply chains and in, in your industries a bit. I mean, um, you know, because this, this has to do with both with national security issues, but also with just general, you know, critical uh, supplies uh, and, and um, all of these strategies. There's a lot of buzzwords out there, you know, decoupling and reshoring, as Peter said, you know, he's losing track, you know, nearshoring, friendshoring, which is basically, you know, sourcing from allies and things like that. And the conversation is really widespread. It's not just a U.S.-China thing. Of course, China is often cited as, you know, sort of a country that's dominating key manufacturing tasks, but also China would be perhaps most damaged by um, successful reshoring, at least in certain areas. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, the public and even policymakers necessarily know always the, the real sheer complexity of these supply chains, how many specialized links there are. Peter mentioned there's 3,000 suppliers. Brittany said, you know, there are global operations. How rooted sometimes these capabilities are in particular geographies, um, even dominant firms, let's say, that occupy a, a little niche or a critical niche or something like that. Um, and so I, I totally agree with Peter when he said that, you know, it would be folly to try to reshore everything, right? Um, but the conversation is really about reshoring links, particular links, identifying them and trying to, um, uh, to, to reshore them. I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, uh, Peter, it sounded like you felt like that was a good thing in the semiconductor industry, or particularly in, I should say, um, semiconductor fabrication. Um, uh, and, um, but I'm wondering if it's that, that, by doing that, do you create new vulnerabilities? So for instance, if you start to, you know, let's say reshore and develop one particular link, 
that link now has to be supplied as well. So is it just shifting vulnerabilities in your in your mind? Um, or is this a way to sort of create, um, you know, sort of that that sense of security? Um, given that, you know, supply chain, every time you move a link, you got to supply that link type of thing. Um, and I'm just curious about, about you know, and, and, you know, of course, in semiconductors, you've got so many things like soft from software to equipment to chemicals, like I'm sure 3M supplies um, and, and whatnot. So there's so many links that go into it. Uh, I'm just curious about your, your thoughts about perhaps, you know, increasing vulnerabilities while also maybe at the same time decreasing them. Um, well, I might uh, start briefly, and I'll talk about our investment in Phoenix. Um, we, a year ago, we announced a $12 billion, five nanometer facility uh, that will be the most advanced chip manufacturing uh, plant ever constructed on U.S. soil. Uh, we're bringing a lot of chemical suppliers with us, uh, natural gas suppliers, uh, and then there are existing suppliers, and I mentioned 3M without getting into the details of it, uh, who are very critical to TSMC. And that's good for American technology leadership and American uh, advances in intellectual uh, in the intellectual property area and lifting the innovative capacity of this country. Um, uh, that's important. The Trump President Trump got that. Wilbur Ross understood that, uh, and Secretary Raimondo is. Uh, she talks about not going to bed every night without thinking about semiconductors and manufacturing here. That's a little. That's amazing. Um, she's done a tremendous job and Joe Biden gets it. It costs money. Uh, it's extremely expensive and we have choices in Japan and the EU and elsewhere. So the United States does want that leading edge here. You want to rise, you want to lift the entire semiconductor ecosystem so that it's robust at the state of the present technology nodes, which are 14 and 22 nanometer and then mature nodes for IOT and autos at 45, 55 and 90 nanometer. You want to lift manufacturing here in this country because it has a catalytic, catalytic impact on great jobs, personal incomes, tax revenue coming in, then local economic development. It is the choreography involved in chips is difficult. And so that's why uh, we need to coordinate, as I was doing last night on a call with the deputy director at the NEC, uh, a, a brilliant woman, Samira Fazili. Um, to make sure they their accelerator and their brake are correctly positioned as we go forward and that they spend and that they invest too in helping us because it's a the world landscape is competitive uh, mm -hmm. and other parts of the world certainly want what the United States is pursuing at, at this time. And so I would say incrementally, we've seen, seen terrific progress, but there's a long way to go here. Uh, from the House passing the CHIPS Act money to getting programmatic funding up and running. But the commitment is there, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. And it's good to partner up for a company with TSMC with a company like 3M. We want those two types of companies uh, side by side working together. Well, that, that's, that's really interesting because you're saying basically that, you know, because of TSMC's position in the supply chain, they're bringing suppliers here. So there's an agglomeration or a clustering effect that will happen, which then um, both builds up the supply chain, right? Globally makes everything more secure, but also U.S. national security interests might be met because you've got the suppliers into your your fabs basically here as well. That's that's a really interesting insight. Um, yeah, Brittany, do you want to add to this? Yeah, I think that the you know Peter, your spot on fantastic case study is TSMC's forthcoming fab plant. Um, 
I think that that's something that will be looked at as standard setting for several years to come. Um, and I'm proud that 3M is gonna be a part of that story. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, supply chains are complex. And when we talk about things like reshoring and ally shoring and nearshoring, people love to use like all these buzzwords, but the reality of it is that this is an extremely complex topic. Um, 3M prides itself on being a company that never offshores. And what I say by never offshore is that 3M never relocated um, any bulk portion of its manufacturing to another country to then be able to import those products back into the United States to be available for the US market. Not to say that we don't import any finished goods, but the bulk of our manufacturing, we try to keep as close to our customers as possible. So 3M's the uh, more than half of our manufacturing is still rooted here in the United States. We have over 26 plants here in the U.S. But that being said, we also have significant operations in other countries. We have 10 facilities in China. We have facilities in Latin America. We have them all over the world. Um, we try to keep our supply chains as lean as possible. So we manufacture close to our customers and then we source as close to our manufacturing facilities as possible. So what we manufacture in China is primarily for the Chinese market. And as a testament to that, 3 to, 3M is actually a three to one net exporter from the United States to China. We send more products from the US to China. We also manufacture significantly in China for the Chinese marketplace. I say that to kind of set the scene that 3M is doing exactly what both governments would like for us to do. We have strong manufacturing here in the United States, creating strong jobs here, you know, keeping our supply chains here in the US as short as possible, sourcing as much as we can domestically. We're exporting to capitalize on other markets. We're also doing in China what they would like for us to do, strong manufacturing in China, domestic self-reliance there. But we still have a lot of issues and concerns. Our supply chains have been very, very carefully curated. And 3M is not an anomaly in that regard. Major corporations that have these sophisticated supply chains spend years curating them. Hundreds of millions of dollars in investments curating these supply chains. Peter just spoke to that as TSMC is setting up their new facility, how they're bringing an entire supply chain with them. This is very detailed and deliberate curating that's happening. So changes are not gonna happen overnight. And I'll give you a very specific anecdote that speaks to the complexity of this. Um, as part of our model to have supply chain resiliency is we always try to have secondary sources of supply. So that way, if one of our suppliers, we don't have a single point of failure on there, we're able to default to a secondary source of supply on whatever the product is, whether it's a raw material or a component that may go into another component. Some of our chemicals are hazardous chemicals and they must be dealt with as such. You have to take extra precautionary measures for, safe, for safety, you know, human health hazards or the otherwise. Um, one example that we have is some of our chemicals are hazardous and we have very specially designed rail cars that they're shipped in. You know, it's, uh, they're very specific to be able to keep these chemicals contained, to make sure that we don't get any spillages or leakages. We've had to go through regulatory hurdles and permitting to make sure that our supplier can get these hazardous materials to our facility in the safest way possible. And all in finding a secondary source of supply, we have to make that same investment to make sure that we have the physical infrastructure to be able to equip them in the event that our primary source of supply fails on us. This is millions of dollars in investments 
to be able to make this happen. So when you're asking a company to all of a sudden uproot all of that and to bring it someplace else, this is not something that's going to happen overnight. We're going to have to go through the the physical or the 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 actually financial investment. We're going to have to go through the physical burdens. You know, it's going to have to be built. It's going to have to be planned. We're going to have to get regulatory approvals, permitting, and the otherwise. And these these very carefully curated and designed systems are all over the world. They're all over the world. So, you know, in terms of path forward, I echo what Peter said, the governments get it to a degree. They understand that these are very complex and it's not going to happen overnight. But as we're kind of making these transitions to meet this end goal, which is, you know, ideally a national security, economic security imperative, that we're having these two-way conversations to help understand what's practical, what's feasible, and what's overly burdensome and not. Once again, it's about finding that balance. Okay, that's great. I'm, that's why I wanted to get into the weeds a little bit, just so that people could get a sense of, you know, how complicated this is. And, and just, you know, when there's a policy intervention, how, you know, how complicated it is for companies to adjust, not just one company, but then the coordination between companies and things like that. So I'm, I'm glad that worked. <laughs> Sometimes when you get into the weeds, it gets too detailed. Um, but that's, that's sort of exactly what I wanted to, to discuss. So um, I want to turn a little bit just to China, if we could, you know, because China feels these same vulnerabilities as well. We've been talking a lot about the U.S. and the Biden administration sort of, you know, getting it right, but learning and, and, and working on it. Now, of course, you know, not, they're not so much, China's not so much worried about the middle technologies or high-tech assembly manufacturing because they're already so strong on that. But a lot of the high-tech upstream inputs, the sort of things that your companies uh, contribute to that feed into the downstream are the areas that they are concerned about. This could also include non-tangibles like specialized services or intellectual property and things like that. Um, and so for China, it, you know, the buzzword there is less about reshoring and it's more about, like I said before, self-reliance. But China has a long history, this is not brand new, of aiming for technological self-reliance. Um, but recently, you know, Chinese policies have really shifted into higher gear. I think a lot of people know about Made in China 2025 as the sort of the headliner that targeted specific industries and specific percentages of an industry that they want to localize. Uh, by 2025 that sort of disappeared a little from you know chinese media and government things but i think the underlying spirit of it is still there certainly in existing policies um so i'm just curious um you know if you had the ear of a chinese policymaker if you agree that this self-sufficiency um or self-reliance is you know is really not going to work in the given the global the tech, the complexities that you, you've already addressed you know, um, what are some alternate strategies that you would recommend to China in terms of their approach to these exact same vulnerabilities and insecurities that they, not exactly the same, like I mentioned, there's a slightly different. So what would you recommend um, uh, in terms of what their policy objectives should be uh, if it's not going to be, let's aim for self-reliance? So. <laughs> sure, for, uh, briefly. Um... China has a good opportunity to build uh, their own semiconductor ecosystem uh, from fabulous players and equipment players to actual manufacturers and then outsourcing and assembly and test players and make sure that those uh, that, that ecosystem remains integrated with the rest of the world. It's a positive opportunity uh, for China and they should pursue that. And TSMC, we ship to China, it's a good marketplace for us. And so I don't, uh, those are positive uh, 
uh, uh, constructive steps that China can take. Now, the United States uh, will take steps to restrict the highest levels of technology going to China. That's what we've seen in the last couple of years, and we have to abide by U.S. laws. But it's important uh, to not build walls around China, but to keep China integrated with the rest of the world in the chip space. Uh, that will benefit the Chinese people, the Chinese government, and their sales. They have excellent companies uh, across the board and can really benefit by remaining integrated with the rest of the world when it comes to chip making and chip sales. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up from there, Peter, because I think that you're spot on. Um, I love what you said about not to build walls around China because, you know, the opening up of the Chinese market, um, it was revolutionary for, for China. And arguably, it has catapulted economic growth in the country at a staggering pace, unlike anything ever seen before. So, you know, let's not confuse self-reliance with closing down a market at the same time. You know, the, the Chinese market has to remain accessible. And I don't think that they will be able to find that balance between keeping that market accessible while closing out some of the most sophisticated technologies around the world, or maybe not closing up, maybe inhibiting the development or the growth of some of those sophisticated technologies. Um, I think that it's prudent for them to continue to keep those open dialogues across the globe. You know, the research and development kind of runs two ways. And as we see governments, both here in the United States and China, looking to kind of um, infringe upon that, whether it's putting in restrictive policies, you know, vis-a-vis -vis here in the United States, or putting in unattractive policies in China that prohibit companies from wanting to bring their most coveted technologies into the country, it's all counterproductive. And at the end of the day, if I had the ear of a Chinese official, I would remind them how important it is to keep the attraction of FDI top of mind. They want to make sure that they always have an attractive market where companies want to come, they want to bring their operations to. And so as they seek to find this balance with self-reliance, keep attracting FDI really top of mind and keep it part of your calculus as well. Because if it becomes overly burdensome, overly restrictive or too expensive, then it's not going to come. That's great. And, and also, I think I would also throw in there, you know, Brittany, you talked before about sort of 3M's structure globally, um, you know, building in redundancies may be something that the Chinese policymakers should try to aim for. I know it's not always possible in all industries and in all segments, but instead of thinking about, you know, self-reliance, more about having those redundancies in place um, so that the, the, the risks aren't there as another um, yep. avenue, let's say, to, to security. Yeah. That, that's, that's really great. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll add on there, Mark, quickly. You know, you sure. bring up a good point about the redundancies because one of the key points of vulnerabilities with a lot of supply chains that we see right now is the geographic concentration of them. Right. So when you have that geographic concentration, such as in China, and all of a sudden something like COVID-19 hits and factories all across the country are forced to shut their doors, that's where it becomes a significant vulnerability. So you don't want to have geographic concentration in any one area, any one area. That, that's great. And so that leads just to my very last question. Um, so so you, that's a good segue um, because you know, oftentimes those, those geographic concentrations might be, I mean, it could be because of efficiencies. There's something about it, the efficiencies. It also could be other firm strategic issues or domination of a particular segment or something like that. But I'm just curious about your ideas. Is there, it, do you feel there's a necessary trade-off between sort of this res, goals of resiliency in supply chains and efficiency? So in other words, 
you know, do we have to expect to sort of pay more uh, in terms of lost efficiencies in order to enhance the security and resiliency of supply chains? Or, you know, again, I'm, I'm always looking for the can we have our cake and eat it too type of scenario. Uh, are these not mutually exclusive in your opinion? And can it sort of be done simultaneously? And or are there any win-win scenarios? I mean, just talking about China and the United States, win-win scenarios that you can think of or any examples of this out there to, where you know you can continue to have this sort of cooperation and security. I'm just curious if you guys have any opinions on that or examples that you know might, might uh, highlight that. Yeah, I, I mean, I can chime in first here and then turn it over to you, Peter, to add your thoughts. I know Semiconductor is, it's kind of in a case of its own when it comes to uh, those types of, uh, thoughts are kind of contemplating that. But, you know, I think, yes, you can have both. You can have resiliency and efficiency. Um, but I also think that sometimes it depends on the industry. It depends on the product, on where you're going to have to make those trade-offs at. That's why it's important to, to define what's critical and what's not critical. You know, for example, like I said, 3M makes 56,000 different products. Um, if we're talking about 3M's compression socks, I may not be so concerned about the resiliency of that supply chain, not to say that we don't take it into consideration, but that's an area where we may make that trade-off. We may kind of favor efficiency over resiliency. But then when you're talking about a product such as our chemicals that feed into the supply chain pipeline, that may be an area where we want to make sure that we have that resiliency, even if it means that we have to pinch a little bit on the efficiency because of the critical nature of these products. And the same would hold true for our N95 or some of the products that we make that go into ventilators or other critical needs that, that we may have. So I think it really depends on the industry. It depends on the product. Um, and that's why I go back to what I said, industry consultation is so important because, like I mentioned, the chemicals that feed into the, the semiconductor supply chain, if the government is looking to boost the resiliency there without compromising efficiency, they would have to have those conversations with the TSMCs of the world to understand where those critical choke points in the supply chain may be and where additional investments would have to be placed in order to try to boost the resiliency there, particularly if you don't want to boost resiliency without compromising efficiency. It can be done, but it's a tightrope to walk for sure. And that's fascinating because, you know, with 56,000 products, I mean, you guys basically have the same conversations that are in government. What is critical? What is not? What's the security thing and what's not just within your own single corporation? And then just think about the huge amount of conversation and dialogue and information exchange that has to happen with with policymakers. I think that's a that's a great example. Peter, do you want to add anything to this conversation? Sure. Um... The CHIPS Act and investing in chip infrastructure here in manufacturing is a win-win. It's a win-win for American jobs. It's uh, good for American innovation and ingenuity and U.S. national economic competitiveness and uh, national security. Um, it's been bipartisan now for the past year, which is outstanding. Uh, from Don Cornyn's leadership and Mike McCall's leadership to President Trump doing the right things, taking the first steps, and Joe Biden taking that football and moving forward and Gina Raimondo is no, no learning curve with her. Um, they all get it. Um, you're going to get your resiliency if you contribute to TSMC's capital efficiency. The reason we do this so well in Asia, and Samsung does it well, not just TSMC, is uh, we've done it for a long time. And uh, capital-wise, 
we need the incentive to make ends meet. And we're headed in that direction. And then uh, on China, it can be win-win for China to echo some of Brittany's very intuitive comments if they uh, don't treat this as a zero-sum game. The chip, as the case example, the chip industry is critically important. It's more important than any part of technology. And the Chinese can win uh, by uh, keeping uh, their borders uh, open and staying connected to global suppliers. They'll win that way. Chinese consumers will win that way. And uh, there'll be no zero-sum losers. Uh, so uh, that, that's an approach that over the years to come, I think would benefit um, both the PRC and the US. Great, fantastic. That, that's great. Um, I really appreciate this. I mean, the conversation is obviously much more to do between different stakeholders. Uh, and, and there's a, a lot that can be accomplished, but you guys, uh, I like that you're on the optimistic side of things um, and, um, and forward looking, so that, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, of course, and your insights and your expertise. That was really wonderful. I learned a lot. I hope everyone else does too, um, and hope to have you guys back on again. Thank you. Thank you again. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.